Hello again, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Real Talks. I'm your host, David Steele, and I'm flying solo again today. Just a friendly reminder, if you like what you're hearing, you can follow us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Just search Real Talks. That's R-E-E-L Talks. Just like my name, S-T-E-E-L-E. Also, you can follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at WannabeRounder, LinkedIn, and on Instagram at DCaduto. She can be found on LinkedIn as well at Orism, and on Instagram at E-L-O-R-A-Z-E-M. Just a couple of quick announcements. Our Patreon channel recently just went live. You can find it by typing Real Talks in the search bar. Let me tell you a little about it. We're offering five different levels that you can support us at. $5, $10, $20, $30, and $40. If you do choose to support us, you'll have the opportunity to get some great perks, such as earning your name shouted out before every podcast, cool merch, and if you're one of our major contributors, you'll get a one-hour monthly meeting with Laura and myself. For more details, just go to the website. I'll leave the link in the description. Which leads me to my next exciting announcement. Beginning in May, the channel will be starting Flashback Fridays, which will mean we'll be talking about movies from the past. The first film we'll be discussing will be Iron Man, and then we're going to be doing every single MCU movie in chronological order. I can't reiterate enough. Hit that follow button so you know when a new podcast is released. Now, with all of that out of the way, we can get started today. Today, we're going to be doing our weekly roundup show. I'll be talking giving my thoughts on some noteworthy stories that have made the headlines this week, including a decent opening weekend for Fantastic Beasts, but could it have been better? Academy Award-winning actress Ariana DeBose to star and produce in an upcoming movie by Screen Gems, a new Sammy Davis Jr. limited series in the works at Hulu, and finally, the new Chop Gun movie shot as much as The Lord of the Rings? I'll tell you how much coming up. Our first story today is going to be about the new movie opening up this week, which is Fantastic Beasts and the Secrets of Dumbledore. This comes from Variety. A pack of intrepid wizards will duel against a tiny blue speed demon to lead the domestic box office charts. The odds-on favorite, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, the third entry into the Harry Potter spin-off series, is expected to debut at at least $40 million dollars, from 4,200 North American theaters. Those ticket sales should be enough to surpass the competition, unless last weekend's champion, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, powers to another strong turnout at the movies. Paramount's kid-friendly sequel opened last weekend to a huge $72 million and could add another 30 or $40 million in its second outing. Elsewhere, Sony Pictures is getting an early start by bringing Father Stu an R-rated faith-based drama starring Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson to theaters on Wednesday. The movie is projected to earn $7 million from a little over 2,700 cinemas in the first five days of release. Harry Potter's veteran, David Yates, directed The Secrets of Dumbledore, a fantastic adventure that puts a bigger spotlight on the beloved Hogwarts professor, Albus Dumbledore, portrayed by Jude Law, in the new movie, he teams up with normal maxillologist Newt Scarum, played by once again by Eddie Raymond, and friends to Thor the Dark Wizard, Garlet Grindelwald, 
played by Mads Mikkelsen replacing Johnny Depp, from igniting a wizard's world war. The third chapter in this prequel, which predates the adventures of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, has received mixed reviews. Variety's Peter DeBerg called the film a, quote, vastly improved sequel, end quote, while the Daily Beast's Nick Scheider said, quote, this perfunctory bit of IP exploration is the remainder of all good things must come to an end, end quote. The prequel series is intended to be a five-film franchise, but executives at Warner Brothers are waiting to see how the Secrets of Dumbledore is received before greenlighting films four and five. Okay, so let me dive into this a little bit. I said on the previous podcast that this had a lot of interesting things to it, and one of them being that Sonic, which actually I made mention of, had a huge weekend and opened with $71 million. So there was a chance that it could take away some of the box office for this. Now, I had said I thought it was going to open anywhere between 35 to $40 million. And I also said that I thought that Sonic would have a good second week because of repeat viewing and a lot of drama behind this with the Johnny Depp case and Ezra Miller and everything else. So now hearing that it's going to debut at about $40 million, I feel pretty confident that it's going to be an okay film. It's not going to be the best film in the world. But then again, you know, you are always going to have films that are franchise that do that. For this to be a five-film franchise, it's going to be interesting because, as I said in my last po- in the last podcast as well, see, franchises have a tendency to have after every film their opening weekend tends to drop. So, this this was budgeted at two hundred million dollars. If this is now it had already made about 60 overseas when I spoke to you guys last time. So the question now is going to be becoming, is this going to be worth going to see? And if it is, are they going to get the repeat business? You know, now you're already three films into a five film franchise. You've already talked about this. I think if they were to cut their losses, film fans would be really upset about this saying, well, why didn't you continue it? Well, I mean, you're losing money, let's face it. So I I think this film is going to break even. You know, it's going to break even in the next week or two. So I wouldn't be shocked to $40 million, let's face it. And, And this is where I was, you know, I reiterated that. $40 million is not a bad opening for this movie. If Sonic hadn't made $71 million, this would have probably made $50, $60 million, which would have been great because it would have been right on par with the other couple. So I think this is going to be a media... I haven't seen this, so I'm going to go see it tomorrow night. But I think it's going to be a mediocre movie. I think this is going to be, as the other two films, a special effects-driven film. So I'm really curious to see how this is received. But more importantly, 
I'm really curious to see how it does next weekend. Because don't forget, this is Easter weekend coming up. A lot of kids are going to be out for the Easter holidays and everything else. Are parents going to go take their kids to go see this? So that's going to be an interesting. Or do they say, well, it did okay. We don't need to see this again. So I think that $40 million isn't bad for it. I think that it will make its money back. And I think you just chalk it up as an okay movie. So, our next story comes from Deadline and is about the most recent Academy Award-winning Best Supporting Actress. Ariana DeBose, who recently became the first openly queer woman of color to win an Oscar for her portrayal of Anita in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, will executive produce Screen Gems 2 and Only, an original screenplay by Latina LGBTQ writer Jen Rivas Deleuze. It will be developed as a star vehicle for DeBose. Sad Unicorn's Randall Ihorn and Jeremy Stearns are producing the project, described as My Best Friend's Wedding with a Bisexual Latina POV. The project will be overseen by Screen Gems by Scott Strauss and Giselle Johnson. DeBose won the Academy Award, SAG Award, BAFTA, and Critics' Choice Award for her Best Supporting Actress role for West Side Story. She is currently in production on Sony Pictures' Craven, a role coveted by many upcoming talents where DeBose landed after blowing away Sony execs. That film is set to be released January 13th, 2023. She also wrapped up production on Matthew Vaughn's action film Argyle from Apple, starring opposite Henry Cavill, Brian Cranston, and Samuel L. Jackson. She also will be starring in Gabrielle Copperwaith's Space Thriller, ISS, along with Chris Messina and Pablo Asbeck. DeBoe earns a Tony nomination for her role as Disco Donna in Summer, the Donna Summer Musical, and she appeared alongside Lin-Manuel in the groundbreaking Tony Award-winning Hamilton as a member of the original cast in both the Broadway and Off-Broadway productions, as well as the Emmy-winning film version that was later released on Disney Plus series Smoot for Apple TV. So all I can say is I'm so happy for her. I am over the moon for her. She is the hottest thing in Hollywood right now. She cannot be stopped. And she is, I mean, the only thing I, that could be stopping her is the amount of projects she's doing. And she's just working, 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 working. And I hope she continues to make top-notch, top-quality stuff. The only thing that could be a possible drawback, and I say possible because the sky's the limit for her, is the quality of her acting might decrease just a little because she's doing so much work. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. Actors, any actor will tell you they want to work. They want to work a lot. I mean, unless you're in a periodical and a television, you know you're locked up. But this is outstanding news for her. I'm so happy, as I said. The fact that she's being an EP now, after just winning her first Academy Award, and, you know, no more than six months later, this is what Academy Awards do for a person's career. This is exactly how you're supposed to go into the business. You make your mark. 
and then you get bigger and better things. This is just fantastic. And I have no doubt that she's going to just kill it in everything she's in. And you just see the quality of actors down that she's going to be working with, with Brian Cranston and Samuel L. Jackson and, you know, Henry Cavill and all these guys. And she's only going to learn more. And when she learns more, I mean, she's going to talk their ears off and be like, you know, get their experiences and she's going to apply them to her own career. I won't be shocked. Don't be shocked in the next four or five years if you see her working with Bob De Niro or Martin Scorsese on something. Because that's how good she is. Or even winning another Academy Award. Look, this is what happened with Jennifer Lawrence, too. When she won for Silver Linings Playbook, she was known for the 2012 movie The Hunger Games. It exploded. It was a huge best-selling book. And when she won her Academy Award the next year, or there soon after, you look at what she did with David O. Russell. And I'm talking about American Hustle. I'm talking about Joy. Unbelievable movies. Bradley Cooper was just, those two were just like peanut butter and jelly, inseparable. And she had three Academy Award nominations in four years. I mean, she was doing what Olivia Coleman did a couple years ago. You know, now she has two Oscars. I mean, she just got nominated for the third time in, in four years for The Lost Daughter in this last Oscar cycle. So I could very easily see her being the next Jennifer Lawrence. She might even win another Academy Award, which would give her a second. She's going to do fantastic things for a long, long time. And it will just, all we can do is, is sit back and watch and wait for the next project. When I mean, her star has already taken off. It's already left the station. It's just a matter of how high can it go. So, as I've said over and over and over, I'm so happy for her. And the thing is... At the end of the day, she's so humble. She is so humble about everything she has, everything she gets, and she doesn't want to take on too much. And she doesn't want to over make everything, you know, put too much pressure on herself because she has the rest of her life. So good for her. I can't wait to see this next project. And the fact that she's producing, like I said, that's no small task because now... With this executive producer credit, she's going to be executive producer on other things that she's either doing herself or attached to. So, and this is how you do it. So, congratulations to her, and we'll just sit back and watch her star grow. Our next story comes from The Hollywood Reporter. Hulu is teaming with Lee Daniels to tell the story of Sammy Davis Jr., the Disney-backed streamer has packed up an eight-episode limited series exploring the life of the entertainer and told through the lens of his racial identity and relationship with the black community. Elijah Kelly, who has collaborated twice already with Daniels, will play Davis Jr. The untitled series is based on Will Haygood's book in black and white, The Life of Sammy Davis Jr., and will chart his rise from his childhood stardom onto the Vanderbilt stage where he became one of the most famous black entertainers of the 1950s and 60s, and the only black member of Frank Sinatra's Rat Pack. 
At the same time, he spent most of his career surrounded by controversy and ridicule over his affairs with white film stars, his 1960 marriage Swedish actress Mary Britt, his conversion to Judaism, his closeness to the Kennedys and later Richard Nixon, and his problems with alcohol and drugs. Daniels and frequent collaborator Thomas Westfall will write the series. Daniels is set to executive produce as well as direct the first two episodes of the drama. Westfall, who served as an associate producer on the United States vs. Billy Holiday and was a writer on Empire and Star, will be credited with as a co-EP. So this is an, an interesting choice. I think that he is one of the lost people from the Rat Pack. I mean, everybody talks about Frank Sinatra and and all the others. And there really hasn't been much done, as far as material, about Sammy Davis Jr. I'm excited that Lee Daniels is on board. I love the butler. So I'm really excited about that. And I think that he's going to bring a a great perspective to this, you know, having been during his era and everything else. And it's going to be short enough with only eight episodes that we're going to be able to see everything. So I think this is going to be a well thought out, driven story that is going to attract a lot of, as far as younger audience, Disney plus, I mean, obviously they've got star Wars and Marvel and, all the Disney animated stuff and, you know, feature films and everything else, but not a lot about, you know, icons. And he really was an icon. So this is going to be a fun, well, maybe not fun. Fun isn't the right word, but I will say an interesting retrospective about this man. And I think that because it's going to be on Hulu, it's going to attract a lot of younger audiences. I said Disney Plus earlier. So I, I'm really curious to see. Now, this is just in the very, very early stages. They have the title cast already, like I said, Elijah Kelly. but And they have a couple of other credits in, done. But it, this will be interesting. It's going to be, as I said, short enough that people aren't going to get bored with it. But it's not going to be long and drawn out. So stay tuned for this. I think this is going to be a good but short series that you'll be able to warm up to. And I saved the biggest one for last. So this comes from Variety once again. Top Gun Maverick directors shot 800 hours of footage, as much as three Lord of the Ring movies. Top Gun Maverick director Joseph Krasinski told Empire Magazine that he shot approximately 800 hours of footage for the long-in-the-works Tom Cruise action sequel. The filmmaker put that number into perspective by saying the sequel, quote, shot as much footage as the three Lord of the Rings films combined, end quote. Kaczynski reunited with his Oblivion star Cruise for Top Gun Maverick, which takes place over 30 years after Tony Scott's 1986 classic. 
Out of a 12 or 14 hour day, you might get 30 seconds of good footage, he said. And why so much footage was shot. But it was hard earned. It just took a very long time to get it all. Months and months of aerial shooting. We shot as much footage as the three Lord of the Rings movies combined. I think it was 800 hours of footage. The aerial sequences weren't the only reason for so much footage. In order to shoot the scenes set inside the cockpits, Kaczynski and the filmmaking team had to teach the actors how to use the equipment themselves since the space is far too small to fit a crew. We had to teach the actors about lighting, about cinematography, about editing, crews told Empire. I had to teach them how to turn the cameras on and off and about the camera angles and lenses. We didn't have limited time with these jets. If they were going up for 20 or 30 minutes, I had to make sure that's, that's what we needed. Tom Cruise reprises his role of test pilot Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell, who's now put in charge of a tra training of a group of younger Top Gun grads played by the likes of Miles Teller, Glenn Powell, and more. Teller stars as Bradley Rooster Bradshaw, a pilot trainee who's the son of Maverick's late best friend, Nick Coos Bradshaw. Also starring in the film is Jennifer Connelly, John Hamm, Lewis Perlman, Ed Harris, and Val Kilmer. It's set to premiere at Cannes on May 27th. So let, let's just start by saying that's amazing. <laughs> 800 hours of footage. Now, how much footage there actually was able to use, we don't know. But to say that out of a 12 or 14 hour day, you were only able to get 30 seconds, that's incredible. So, you know, for I think a lot of these people, they had to really go to film school because, I mean, for Tom Cruise, I'm sure this came in second nature, right? Like, he, he, he was doing his own stunts anyways, but I'm sure he knew how to use the cameras and cinematography. He knows all about filmmaking in every facet. So it's more of he's being a teacher or a second director, if you will, to a lot of these other younger uh, stars. But that's just an extraordinary amount of footage. 800 hours. So... The only thing I can compare this to is maybe the last Mission Impossible that he did with the Halo jump. So Halo is, it's an acronym for high altitude, low oxygen. And he and Henry Calville had to train for a year to be able to do that. And every single day... Christopher McQuarrie and, and the crew would only be able to get between 20 to 30 seconds of footage. And they had to do it when the lighting was perfect. So, and you only got one run per day. So if it didn't work, oh well, you just try again tomorrow. But this just, I'm flabbergasted because you think about, put it to you like this. Your average movie, your average feature film, let's say is two hours from beginning End credits, okay? Or total running time is, is two hours. That's 400 movies. Think about that. How many movies have you seen in your lifetime? That's 400 movies. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of footage. So, I hope that all the stunts are 
that good then. All the flying is that good. This movie, if they shot that much footage, and I'm sure a lot of it was unusable, but the, the dog fighting in this should be next level. It should be unbelievable. So I'm really interested now in seeing this. I mean, I was interested before. I mean, I was, you know, I, I have a, made a point about how I think you have maybe a three, two to three year window for sequels. 30 years just, I think, is, is too long. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, the one I always go back to and I keep referencing every single time is Wall Street Never Sleeps. I mean, that was an incredible movie by Oliver Stone. You know, won Michael Douglas an Academy Award for Best Actor in 1985. But Wall Street Never Sleeps was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And I would put that on the do not see list. <laughs> so I'm really kind of interested to see how they're able to do it. I do like the fact that they were able to fit Val Kilmer in this role somehow. Because anybody who's seen Top Gun, and if you haven't seen Top Gun, go back and watch it. It's a classic. Iceman won the Top Gun Academy. And so it was said that anybody who won could come back and be an instructor. Well, so, you know, I'm sure and he's had his health problems and everything else. So I'm really glad they were able to fit him in. I don't know if we're actually going to see him. I mean, they showed what, his picture in one of the trailers. He's an admiral now. So he's probably behind a desk and okay. But, be you know, Jennifer Connelly being the new love interest. She's a good actress. So, yeah, Miles Teller is, is a really good actor as well. Looks He looks the part of Goose's son. Anybody who's watched the trailers. Yeah. I'm curious to see who dies. You know. I don't think Tom Cruise's character would die. That would be, you know, ruin the movie. But, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe Goose's son does. You know, I mean, that would be... I could see them pulling heartstrings. You, you know, I mean, think about it like this. When you watch a trailer for this, this new Top Gun movie... How many different, how many shots did you see were from like the 1986 movie? I mean, the opening shot was Tom Cruise, speed, one of the opening shots was Tom Cruise speeding down a runway on a motorcycle. Then you had the iconic volleyball shot, right? So immediately you see them already tapping into the previous film of what Tony Scott did. Now, if it's not broke, don't fix it. This, In that respect, it reminds me of, I'd say, the first 10 or 15 minutes of The Force Awakens. When I was watching The Force Awakens in the theater for the very first time, and I saw how this movie opened and saw the characters and everything, I went, oh my God, this is Star Wars all over again. And it worked. So, that being said, this is Top Gun all over again, right? So, you know, you have a few minor changes, 
But for the most part, the most the more things change, the more things stay the same, right? So I'm really curious to see how everything plays into this. Does Goose's son die? So if that if they did that, let's just say for a minute, and by the way, this is complete speculation. I don't know anything. But let's say, just for argument's sake, let's say that they killed Goose's son in the same way. What would that do for the movie emotionally? And, I mean, we had, you know, Goose, we had the father die in the first one. You know, the old talk to me Goose. I don't know. How, that might be a question I pose to the listeners here. Do you think they would go ahead and kill Goose's son? Or do you think that maybe he's going to be an intricate part and he wants to, you know, have Maverick as a father figure? So that that would be something to look forward to. But getting back to the premise, 800 hours is an extraordinary amount of footage for this. And for the... To shoot as much as a three Lord of the Rings movie is incredible. You're never going to see this kind of footage, this amount of footage, ever shot again. I don't think they'll ever do another. This is this is one of those movies that everybody's been looking forward to for a long time. So I'm glad that Paramount didn't give us everything at once. I'm sure there are a few secrets that they've saved for the movie. So, now, box office-wise, how is it going to do? I don't know. Because, let's think about something. Doctor Strange comes out in three weeks, and this is the first major Marvel film of the year. I mean, we're going to have Thor, Love, and Thunder later on. But this is this is the first major Marvel movie of the year. This is, I think, easily going to do $100 million in its sleep. Just because of the success of, of No Way Home. Just because of the storyline. Just because of a lot of things. And from what I've heard, it's crazy. I mean, so... If you haven't already, go back to listen to my interview with ABC7 movie critic George Pinocchio. We talk about Doctor Strange, and he said he's interviewed one of the higher-ups at Marvel. And he said that, according to her, it was it's incredible. It's nothing like you expect. I um, talked to the woman who runs Marvel, one of the people, the bigwigs, Victoria Alonso. And Victoria, who I love, said, everything you think you know about this movie, forget it. You don't know. It's wild. It's incredible. It's visual. It's going to surprise you. And there are twists and turns that you won't see coming. She sold it like, a, you know, a, like a, a, an expert salesperson because She's so excited about Doctor Strange. And I love Benedict Cumberbatch. And so I'm in. So, yeah. So I this is going to make $100 million going away. We know that. There's not much else coming out between then 
and the end of the month. I think it's going to rule for the first couple of weeks. And then I think Top Gun's going to, you know, by that time, if this is, if Doctor Strange is as good as everybody thinks it is, and it sets up more down the road, this is going to easily be a repeat showing film, which then kind of makes you wonder how much is this Top Gun movie going to do? If it doesn't make $100 million, is that a failure? Because everybody is, and I say everybody, a, a lot of pundits are talking about, could this be a $100 million film? So I'm gonna, if I had to put a ballpark on it right now, today, April 14th, over a month away, I would probably say 70 to $80 million today. Now, it's all going to depend on how Doctor Strange opens. If Doctor Strange opens with over $100 million, which I think it will do, I think that that's going to eat into some of the Top Gun's box office. And I, it's a perfect example of what happened this last weekend, or this upcoming weekend. Okay, Sonic made $71 million this last weekend, and Fantastic Beasts is only going to make about 40 But it was a $200 million film to make. So how is this going to be received? So I, I think that I would say in anywhere between 70 to $80 million. And that's not a failure. That's not a failure if it doesn't hit $100 million. Because whatever it doesn't make here... It's going to make up for it overseas. This movie is going to be huge overseas. And probably make, I would say, close to two-thirds of its worldwide gross overseas. So, we'll see. I think it's going to be an interesting month of May. And, you know, summer blockbuster season now starts in, in May. It's no longer June. So, and here's something else you have to consider. Jurassic Park Dominion comes out, I want to say the 17th of June. And so you're talking about another three weeks. How is that going to do against Jurassic Park? This is going to be the first time you've had two major blockbusters in a theater in a few years. So would people rather go see Jurassic Park or Top Gun? So I don't know. It, it's it's hard to say right now today. But as we get closer and closer and closer, we'll get a better idea. And I guarantee you that they're going to ramp up marketing for this and, and everything else. So we're just going to take it a week at a time. So on that note, I'm going to head off. Next week, we're going to do a little fun show. It's going to be called Welcome to the 80s. And this is going to be talking all about 80s movies. And we're going to pick two or three films. And we're going to talk about them. And there were so many good movies in the 1980s. I mean, where do you start, right? From Raiders of the Lost Ark, to Stand By Me, to The Breakfast Club, to Pretty in Pink, 
And the list goes on and on and on. So, Wall Street. I mean, that's going to be a tough couple of movies to pick out. So, the 80s was one of, I, I think it was The Goonies. Uh, just, in, you know, I think the 80s was one of those decades, too, where you saw a lot of Rain Man. <laughs> I know I'm talking, but I'm just thinking of these movies off 1989. Dustin Hoffman wins his second Academy Award. So, another Tom Cruise film, by the way. I think the 1980s, if I had to put a pin on it right now, would be one of the major decades for coming-of-age stories. If you take a look at a lot of the movies that came out in the 1980s, a lot of them were coming-of-age stories. I mean, The Goonies, even though it was a fun adventure, you know, swashbuckling time with a bunch of, you know, kids, they grew up during the movie. How could I forget Back to the Future, 1985? <laughs> so I'm just thinking of these movies off the top of my head. So, but a lot of, a lot of these movies, Stand By Me, Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast Club, as I said, all these movies are coming of age movies. So, not to mention all the action adventure and the horror and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. So, anyways, I, I could go on and on and on and on and on. But, so what we're going to do next week is we're going to, we're going to choose two or three movies and as difficult as that may be, if we have to, we might come back for a part two. We'll see. And we're going to talk about some of the most defining films of that decade. So that is going to be a fun time. I'm really curious to see what my co-host is going to come up with. Because I, I, as I was just talking to you, you know, you heard... I just feel off five, six, seven, eight movies. So, you know, I mean, where, where do you start, right? Where do you start? What genre do you start at? So, I mean, I'm not even talking about Return of the Jedi, 1983. <laughs> or Empire Strikes Back, 1980, 81. So I could go on and on and on. So until then... I'm David Steele, and this has been Real Talks.